Lord Farquhar says, some of you are going to die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Listeners, we're privileged to have back for the third time Prit Batar and his expertise on the Eastern European front, the war between the Russians and the Germans, ended 1945. His previous books include the acclaimed Battleground Prussia, The Assault on Germany's Eastern Front, 1944 to 1945, and Between Giants, The Battle for the Baltics in World War II. His most recent publication, was Meat Grinder, The Battle for the Rajiv Salient, 1942 to 43. Pritt originally studied medicine at Oxford in London before joining the British Army as a doctor. He laterally worked as general practitioner for seven years. He now writes exclusively from his home in rural Scotland, where he also indulges his hobbies for wildlife and astrophotography. The reason why I really wanted to have Pritt back on is um, I am really interested and obsessed, if you will, by the civilian devastation going on in Gaza um, between the Israelis and Hamas. Uh, for some reason, it, it's brought me right back to uh, World War II and the Eastern Front when the Russians uh, seized the, the offensive and started to attack the, the Germans and push them back all the way to Berlin. And immediately my mind went to who is the expert on this because it talks about so many issues that are relevant today. And of course, Pritt is the expert. He's written 13 books on the Eastern Front, um, and he was willing to discuss this. So it may veer into various channels, but uh, with his expertise, we will hopefully catch a thread and, and enlighten you into some understanding of um, counterattacks, revenge, uh, what motivates people, why something like this could go on for a long time, and um, what's behind it all. Britt, please give our listeners um, who may not be as familiar with the Eastern Front uh, as they were with the Allied Western Front in World War II and the defeat of the, the Nazis, um, just give us an overview as to what happened. I know we've done two podcasts, one about Moscow, one about Leningrad, but uh, in summation, give us something there and then take us through what happened when the tables got turned on the Germans and the Russians counterattacked. Well, good afternoon, Jonathan, and, and hello to everybody else. Um, yes, the Eastern Front conflict started um, in the summer of 1941 and ended in May 1945. It was very, very different from the conflict on the on the West because from the outset, it was um, intended by Hitler as uh, a clash of two irreconcilable cultures. Uh, one was going to triumph, and by doing so, was going to obliterate the other one. There was This was, a, um, if you like, the ultimate zero-sum conflict. Either Nazism would prevail or uh, Soviet communism would prevail. There, there was not sufficient room in Hitler's vision of the, of the world for both to exist side by side. Um, he very explicitly told his uh, uh, generals, who then passed this on to uh, their, their subordinates, that this war was not going to be subject to the same rules of war that uh, prevailed in the conflicts in, um, in the West against France, against Britain, uh, against um, Belgium, the Netherlands, etc. And as a result, the war in the East was fought with unbelievable brutality on both sides. It all gets wrapped up, of course, in uh, Hitler's wider ambitions regarding uh, the racial purification of Europe, particularly, but not exclusively, um, with regard to the Jewish populations of Eastern Europe. And this added, if you like, several additional layers of bloodshed and brutality. Eventually, um, it roughly around the time of Stalingrad, so this is the end of 1942, going into 43, the momentum shifts quite decisively away from Germany um, as uh, the Red Army starts to get the upper hand. But such is the scale of the German advance up to that point that it takes uh, the whole of 1943 and pretty much the whole of 1944 before the Red Army reaches uh, the western frontiers of the Soviet Union and then starts to threaten uh, to invade uh, in, invade Germany proper. So if you like, that is the background and the stage setting to uh, the events of, uh, of, the, of summer 1944, which pretty much shape uh, the conflict from there onwards. Britt, we'll just describe a little bit of 
What did you say that these tactics were not to be the same as on the Western Front? And there was a barbarity involved in this. What are we talking about? From the very outset, um, prisoners of war are by, were treated by both sides in a manner that would not have been the same in, in, in the West. Um, huge numbers of Soviet prisoners were taken by the uh, Germans, and huge numbers of those then perished uh, very, very early on in the war. Um, something like two million uh, Soviet soldiers were captured in the opening months of the conflict, and over 90% of them died uh, within a year of being captured from starvation, from exposure, from deliberate uh, overwork, um, and through combinations of all three of those. Um, People were forcibly enslaved and taken away to work in factories, forced to work in the front line, uh, digging trenches and fortifications, etc. And this created in the Red Army an enormous appetite for revenge. Uh, were, were, were villages burned? Were women raped? Were, were, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Were, that was, was so. When a, when the when the Nazis <clears throat> occupied a village in 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 Russia, they burned the village and raped the women. It wasn't as systematic as that, but um, it didn't take much for violence to erupt. So hostages were taken quite widely. Um, entire villages would be told, you are all hostages, and in the event of a partisan attack, you will all be held accountable. Uh -huh. And as the partisan movement began to grow behind the German front lines, not right. least because of the huge right. numbers of Soviet soldiers who had been left behind and uh, as stragglers, um, as the partisan movement began to grow, the, the Germans conducted enormous anti-partisan operations, often taking up 30, 40, 50,000 soldiers out of the front line to do this. And these became just massacres, really. They would sweep mm -hmm. through the countryside. Anyone who, who they came across, who they even suspected of having helped the partisans, would be shot, uh, would be killed. Their villages would be burned down. Um, rape becomes a, a weapon of war in pretty much every conflict. In the case of the Germans in, on the Eastern Front, there wasn't any systematic raping of uh, Soviet women. It was more a matter of they established brothels behind the front line, and women were then coerced with very little choice to work in those. But having said that, there would have been that hundreds of thousands of rapes across the countryside, but they were just simply never recorded. Okay. So now the Russians um, have pushed back and um, there's an attempt that they're, they're at the, the border. Um, just where does the Hitler assassination come in in all of this? It's a very important factor because uh, the um, anti-Hitler resistance has been building in its uh, plans and its strength uh, throughout the war. There have been a number of attempts to kill him, uh, none of which have been successful. And come the summer of 1944, there was a widespread belief that it's now or never. Um, and certainly when we get to uh, the summer of 1944, uh, uh, Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, who is, is now very famous, um, he suspected that the Gestapo was onto the conspirators, which added a, a new layer of urgency, if you like, to the need to do something. They felt that with the war turning so decisively against Germany, this was pretty much the last opportunity to do something. They knew that the Western uh, allies and, and, indeed, and indeed Stalin were not going to negotiate with Hitler. So the only way they could see of achieving a negotiated end to the conflict was to get rid of the leadership. So basically, it was a, from when the, when the assassination failed, the entire war effort was a suicide mission, in a sense, in the sense that there was no way they were going to stop the Allies who were already in 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 the Eastern Front, Western Front. The, the Russians were already on the offensive in the Eastern Front. So this, the German general staff understood that their country would be destroyed at a level that was unacceptable to human civilization. But Hitler wouldn't agree to that. So there was a fanaticism in him that that was... Um, almost barbaric in its in its telling and truthfully that's exactly what happened right okay very very much so so you you can look at this as if you look at the motivation behind um both the political and military leadership in germany and indeed um, in the rank and file of the armed forces and perhaps large swathes of civilian society too 
if you start looking at the factors of why they end up in this position of fighting the war to the bitter end, and it really is going to be a bitter end by then, the first category, if you like, are what you might think of as, for want of a better expression, positive factors. So this would be things like um, a belief that our cause is righteous and just, and we will prevail purely because our cause is righteous and just. In the case of, of the Nazi party, Hitler's almost miraculous escape from the July plot was regarded by many as a sign that he had been sent by Providence to wow. save Germany. And therefore, this was a sign that they had to fight on because, wow. you know, they, there you are. He could have died and he didn't. So many things had to go wrong for the bomb not to kill him and it didn't kill him. Therefore, he is, if you like, the chosen one who will lead Germany to victory. Wow. So, so it confidence in Hitler had actually been declining ever since the Battle of Moscow. But this resulted in, if you like, a renewal, particularly amongst the party faithful and his core support. Um, there was also a belief that um, at that time that new German weapons were far superior to mm -hmm. those of the Western powers and of the Soviet Union. And these new tanks, these new jet aircraft, the the vengeance weapons, the, the V weapons, all of these were going to turn the tide. So if you like, these are the positive reasons for fighting on, that you believe the war can be won, and it must be won, because after all, providence is on our side. We are fighting for Germany's rightful place in the world uh, to be the dominant nation of Europe. Therefore, of course, we have to fight on. Oh, my God. Okay, so, it doesn't seem rational today, but we, because we know what oh. happened. So they're at the they're the the Russians are at the Oder River. What river are they? What's the well? This is this is more on they're on the Vistula. So this is sure, in, that's it. Uh, east mm -hmm. central Poland. Okay, but but to return to these um, these various reasons, then you feel like there are the yeah. negative factors uh, that motivated people to fight on, and negative factors. Are, by that I really mean factors that are driven by fear. So. If you fear that the other side is bent upon the complete destruction of your nation and of your people, you really have no choice but to fight on. There isn't, if you surrender, they're going to destroy you anyway. So you have nothing to lose. You may as well fight on in the hope that either these various weapon systems will prevail or who knows, something else will happen. Um, the Germans always clung to the model of the old wars during the, the Prussian era, when the death of the uh, Russian ruler led to a great change of fortunes for Frederick the Great. So they still believe that this, this unwieldy alliance against them might break up if only they could just stay in the game for long enough. And then, and then the other, so there's, if you like, there's external fear, fear of what the other side is going to do to you. But then there's internal fear too. And this is where the, the, if you like, the aftermath of the failed July plot really bore its bitter fruit. There was such widespread suspicion by the Nazis of the army and of all other parts of society that they were not going to tolerate any resistance, any talk of defeatism, etc. People could be arrested, imprisoned, even executed for even just for saying things like, why are we still fighting when our cities are being reduced to rubble, uh, etc. So you, you are scared of what the enemy is going to do. You're scared of what your own side will do to you if you show um, any hesitation. And of course, in, in the case of the Germans, there was this additional fear that by then, certainly in the military and very large swathes of civilian society, knew full well mm -hmm. the level of atrocities that have been committed in the mm -hmm. East. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, they quite rightly feared what the Red Army was going to do to them in turn. And again, that, that gives a very, very strong motiv motivation to fight on. And this in particular show, explains why, as we get into 1945 and the Western Allies reach and cross the Rhine, um, resistance is increasingly disorganized and the Germans are gradually collapsing. Whereas in the East, uh, resistance remains very organized, very resolute. Morale may be collapsing, but actually discipline remains strong, and the German army stays in the fight right to the very end. Right. I, was there a time that the, the Germans wanted the Allies to take Berlin and go further uh, and surrender to the Allies? There was a lot of belief, certainly amongst civilians, by the time you get into 
the end of the winter of 1944-45, by then sufficient parts of Germany had been overrun by American troops uh, that there was some uh, increasing awareness that the uh, Americans were not behaving right. as appallingly right. as right. as German propaganda had told them they would behave, whereas there was plentiful evidence by then that the Red Army was doing everything that had been expected of them. So the feeling was, look, if we're going to go down, we may as well go down to the side that's going to treat us better. Well, and that's again, rational, you know. Yeah. And again, amongst the military, they knew that by then the Red Army was minded, certainly anybody in a black uniform, whether they were SS or, or Panzertruppen, they were going to be put up against a wall and shot. Uh, whereas the British and the Americans and the Canadians and French were more likely to take you right. prisoner and then maybe sift you out afterwards. So right. there, there, there were motivations. But having said that, there were plenty of diehards on both fronts who were going to fight to the very, very end. OK, so what happened, actually, when they crossed the Vistula River and they really started to invade Poland and Germany, uh, itself what was the behavior what was the uh, what was the tactics of the of the red army what did they do the red army's first surge carried them from the vistula in the second week of january 45 all the way across what is now poland um to roughly the the current uh, eastern border of germany um and they reached that roughly in early march so in the space of about six maybe seven weeks they covered a huge amount of territory and they pretty much um destroyed any last hope of if you like prolonged resistance not only because of the the casualties they inflicted upon the german army and the destruction of um you know uh, tanks and aircraft etc but more particularly because they overran the last untouched industrial areas of germany in what was then silesia and is now southern poland and by doing so they effectively closed off germany's supply of coal and of minerals etc so even if Germany continued fighting and even if there were still functioning factories elsewhere, raw materials were going to continue running out and there would no longer, there, there was barely enough coal by then uh, to provide uh, electricity for these factories uh, and elsewhere anyway. Um, so by then, if you like, the material means of, of waging war were then taken away from them. But also that advance carried the Red Army um, to and beyond Auschwitz and the horrors that they found there. Um, lots of uh, uh, Soviet soldiers left uh, accounts of what they saw there and in, in the satellite camps. And as they then started reaching German territory in particular, but also regrettably as they crossed Poland, um, discipline began to break down in large parts of the Red Army, not so much in if you like, the first echelon troops, the um, the tank armies, um, the guards, rifle armies, etc. It was more, if you like, in the second echelon following behind them. Rape became very, very widespread. Looting was very widespread. And this actually fed the, the fury of the Red Army, because if you imagine being a soldier in the Red Army, you've been fighting this war for many years. You've seen thousands of your comrades killed, right, you have letters, right. from, letters from home telling you right. about destruction of your town and the, the way that your Jewish neighbors were slaughtered, etc. All, all of this stuff. You then enter towns in Prussia and Pomerania and Silesia. You come across these German villages and you are stunned by how comparatively rich German civilians are compared oh. to your own people. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. this created a whole new uh -huh. layer of fury and anger of why did you wage war on us when you already right. had so much? Um, so there was widespread looting. There was a lot of what you might describe as just wanton destruction yeah. of, uh, of, of, of villages, of towns, of cities, and of property uh, as the Red Army advanced. And, and by the time the Red Army then pauses to gather its breath before the final assault on Berlin, um, this is necessary, firstly, because they've they've taken casualties and they have to replenish their units. Secondly, they have to bring forward fuel and ammunition and food, etc. But thirdly, because they have to restore order, because a lot of the really? Soviet formations have become very, very disorganized with drunkenness, with looting, right. with pillaging, with rape, with murder, etc. 
Right. It's exactly what the, the, the Germans said was going to happen, happened. Absolutely. Um, the, the Goebbels had made a huge thing about, right. the, about the, um, the, the what was described variously as the Asiatic Bolshevik menace or the Jewish Bolshevik menace, and sometimes both Asiatic and Jewish Bolshevik menace at the same time. But whilst that propaganda was largely um, accurate in its predictions, there was never any recognition officially at least, of why the Red Army was behaving so badly right. uh, and what the Germans had done to, you know, to, to sow the seeds of this terrible wrath. Um, having said that, like I said uh, earlier on, sufficient numbers of German soldiers had experienced the uh, atrocities on the Eastern Front yeah. and had either written home or had talked about it when they were on leave. And, you know, rumors had spread through German oh, sure. society. And although a lot of Germans denied after the war and said, we didn't know any of what was going on, the evidence is that there was pretty widespread knowledge of the way Germany had fought. Um, and therefore, when Goebbels started his propaganda uh, on this is what is going to happen if we lose the war, um, people absolutely believed it, and with good reason. Did Hitler give a, a scorched earth order to destroy every single thing that 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 could possibly exist? Waterworks, food supplies, and all the everything. He basically wanted to leave a complete um, wasteland, and the generals rebelled against this uh, and and decided. And Speer said, "No, you can't do this." Well. Absolutely, he did. And he did so for at least two separate reasons. The first, of course, was to deny the enemy um, uh, various resources, whether they be bridges or power stations, uh, etc., um, in order to try to uh, reduce the speed at which the Red Army might advance uh, against Germany. The second uh, factor, though, feeds into this concept of this is um, a war of two irreconcilable opposites. And in Hitler's view of the universe, if Germany could not defeat the Soviet Union, it did not deserve to survive. And wow. therefore, the destruction of your own people was entirely justified because, if wow. you for want of a better expression, they yeah. showed themselves to be unworthy. Um, wow. In fact, he, he used those very words right at the very end, saying, Germany has failed me and failed my vision. They right. are not worthy of survival. Now, uh, Albert Speer, the armaments minister, wrote in his memoirs after the war about the great lengths he went to to avoid this destruction. Um, how accurate that is, is open to question. He certainly did a great deal, but you can imagine writing after the war, he had a good incentive to perhaps embellish the account and make it seem as if he did a little more right. than he actually did. Um, many of the generals aided him, others refused point blank to aid him. But the additional problem was that um, one of the consequences of the failed July plot was an enormous strengthening of the stranglehold of the Nazi party on all aspects of, of um, German life, uh, of civil administration and life. So Germany was divided into various regions uh, or each region or Gau was headed by a Gauleiter. And the Gauleiters were, they were all, for want of a better expression, fanatical Nazis. Right. So when they received orders from Hitler to carry out this scorched earth policy, some of them did listen to um, uh, Speer's pleas uh, for them not to do so, but many of them said, no, no, this is what the Fuhrer has ordered and this is what we must do. So there was um, a variable amount of destruction depending on which region uh, you were looking at. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, well, it's really interesting to to think about these final fanatics because I thought they were fanatics in 1943 or 42. When was it that Goebbels declared total war? You know, when they started getting defeated all over the place and losing battles in Italy and 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 in Russia also, they decided then they were going to declare total war as if they hadn't before. We, what year was that? And I thought that was when the Nazi Party became completely fanatical and, and and people were executed for saying you know in a subway um i i don't know if there's enough heat and things you know it, it was just like everything was intercepted what year was that was when, 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 well, when, when Goebbels declared quote total war yes this would have been february 1943 okay. but 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 there was a difference between the words and the deed so okay. although total war was declared and a lot of um 
if you like, peacetime civilian in industrial production was switched to purely military production, extraordinary um, areas right. were exempted and for the most bizarre reasons. For example, uh, Eva Braun prevailed upon Hitler um, to permit the continued manufacture of cosmetics because okay. she felt this would be bad for uh, morale right. amongst women. Right. Um, the mobilization of women folk into industry um, lagged far behind what was happening um, in even the United States, let alone in places like Britain and especially in the Soviet Union, right until after the July plot, when there was, if you like, um, a renewal of this drive towards total war, total war. and, and uh, you know, eliminating all superfluous activity in favor of trying to increase military production. Okay. Um, I think we've all seen, or at least I've seen, I hope other people have too, the heartbreaking scenes of the youth trying to defend Berlin. I mean, you look at the scenes of these 12-year-old, 10-year-old kids uh, trying to carry guns, old Mausers or something like that, and build fortifications to stop the tanks and carrying uh, cobblestones and doing, you know, you just look at this ragtag army of civilians and kids trying to stop the, the the final invasion of Berlin. You go, what, you know, who would allow that? And of course, then Hitler killed himself, you know, days later or this, that, the other. But it's so incredible to think of the fanaticism and the, that went on um, that would enlist children to, to, to fight a war. Yes. And if you, um, the way I look at this is that, it, when I think back um, to my own childhood, my earliest memories are when I was probably perhaps three years old. I, I think I can just about remember stuff from when I was about three years old. So people who were, were three years old when Hitler came to power would have been 14 or 15 as oh, those final battles right. were being fought. So these are people, these are children, teenagers, who have known no other government. All they have known is the Führer and the, the Führer cult, his um, cult of infallibility, etc. And we always must remember the degree to which uh, radio and the press um, and the printed media were so tightly controlled. Right. Um, it's, it is something that is, you know, beyond our imagination, that level of indoctrination and control. Unless you think about North Korea. Unless you, exactly. That's the <laughs> level you have to go to now right. in order to, to restrict. I mean, even in even in um, um, modern day China, where yeah, access to large parts of the internet are, are restricted, stuff still leaks yeah, through yeah. pretty easily. Um, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So now we've wrapped up to some degree, um, you know, what went on in the Eastern Front and the revenge and the... Uh, the <clears throat> The fighting back of the of the Red Army, uh, etc. Uh, let's talk a little bit about proportionality. I know that you know this is a very difficult subject right now, but it's it really is worth uh, discussing. Um, what was this the Allies' goal in in destroying so much of Germany, um, Dresden, Cologne, Hamburg? Uh, Berlin also. I mean, there there was an attempt to almost obliterate uh, German cities and society from the face of the earth. And everybody questions whether this was militarily necessary. They're, not everybody, but many people are wondering, you know, what was this all about? What's the story of proportionality with, with bombing uh, Dresden or Cologne or Hamburg and the hundreds of thousands of civilians that were slaughtered and in the fire bombing of these places? What's I think the first thing, yeah, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that the precision of weaponry in those days was far uh, less than there is, than exists now. Um, okay. Although um, bombing radar had been invented, and of course bombers had bomb sites as they flew over German cities, it was actually quite hard to hit. You know, you to fly over a target and drop your bombs out of a, a B seventeen or out of a Lancaster and hit a factory was a tall order. Um, you would just end up bombing a whole district in order to try to, to hit that target. So oh. you, um, the so first of all, even if they had been minded to restrict damage to cling off Germany's war industry, this was technically quite hard to do. Um, but also there was there was by then a concept of this is a total war. These are nations at war. War has been declared. 
And if you like, the people who worked in the factories building the tanks and guns and ammunition for the German army were as legitimate a target as the factories themselves. Killing the workforce was seen as just another means of destroying German um, capacity uh, in terms of manufacture. What would you what would you put the revenge element as a proportion? If a hundred percent is the the body, and the military factor is what you just said, destroying the industrial base and bombs weren't accurate. What was the? Could you make up a number, or not make it up? But could you give us an insight into what you think the just revenge for the the, the Nazi bombing of of London and the Blitz? And you know the the British countryside and the Nazis' destruction of you know so so much of Europe. What was just that factor, if, if at all? It's a very very hard question to answer, and and I think I'll limit myself to saying that it was almost certainly a, a significant factor. But, okay. But whatever number you put on it would depend upon your personal point of view and also a degree of hindsight. But I think the what you mentioned earlier on the, the proportionality issue is very important. Some of the, the you know, over 50% of all German civilian casualties um, took place between the failure of the July plot and the end of the war. This wow. is the last 10 months of the war. Right. And many, many of those civilians were killed in these massive air raids on Cologne, right. um, utter devastation of Berlin and places like Dresden. And in some of those individual raids, in some of those assaults, um, more bombs would fall upon Berlin, for example, or Dresden in 24 hours than were dropped on all British cities during the entire war. Oh and, my God. Yeah, I, it, it was an utter- Would you repeat that please? In, in 24 hours, more bombs? More bombs would fall on a single German city than the Luftwaffe managed to drop on all British cities in the entire war. That is the that is the level of bombardment, um, the scale of the bombardment, and if you like, the disproportionality of what was uh, being done to German cities at that stage. Wow. Yeah, um, I've written about this. Uh, this this proportionality issue is 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 a, a, a recent fetish in the West. It certainly wasn't in World War II. Was there anybody that came out in Britain or in the United States and said, hey, wait a minute, maybe you shouldn't have done this to Cologne? I mean, is, was was there yeah. any, quote, you know, resistance movement or, you know, people who were concerned about this? Again, this is the people say with the benefit of hindsight. That, no, no, I mean, in, when it was know, happening. Yeah. And as, what, what, well, people say, well, I raised this, <laughs> um, but actually did they and, and how strenuously did they did they? I think certainly by the time you get to Dresden, um, by then there were people saying, are we really still doing this? Are we still devastating entire cities purely to kill a railway network? Um, you know, is this is this a, a reasonable way to proceed? And I think certainly by the time you get to the last two or three months of the war, there are people saying, why are we still carrying out these mass air raids? This is, you know, this is utterly futile. Everything that's worth bombing has already been hit. Um, we're just, we are just killing now for killing's sake. But certainly until you get to that stage, I think, you know, right the way through till the winter of 44, 45 and into early 45, there was little serious consideration uh, into reining back the effort and saying enough. Wow. Okay. So now I want to switch to um, uh, the current conflict in Gaza and the, the uh, parallels or lack of parallels between the Eastern Front and the Germans and the Hamas situation. And I know that, you know, you're not a, a expert on the Mideast, nor am I, but uh, I think as intelligent observers of political military situations, we can discuss this um, in a rational manner. I think I just want to make it clear to anybody who cares to listen. Um, you know, I am a proponent of peace amongst all people. I am a rational Western person. I want everybody on the planet to get along, uh, have a great economy, have a nice life. Uh, I don't believe in fanaticism of any kind. I, every death is, a, is one too many. I don't want to see people hurt. I don't want to see anybody 
uh, unnecessarily hurt. Um, and I don't think violence is, a, is the solution to any form of you know, human, human conflict in the 21st century. So um, that's how I really feel. Um, and I feel that strongly of whether it's the Ukraine or Sudan or the Reagan or the Tibetans or all the, or the Sudanese, you know, they, these people and, and hurt, hurtful people, hurting people bothers me on every level all day long. So um, that, that, that is for sure. But um, I am appalled at the uh, Hamas leadership's um, exposing their civilians to this level of, of, of brutality and this level of military um, aggression. Uh, when I was in Ukraine last year, um, it was clear that the soldiers were dying on the front lines in the most horrible, brave fashion. They were sacrificing themselves to beat back the, the Russian invaders. They were being slaughtered, decimated. There were no air cover. It was, it was horrific. And the civilians were hiding in tunnels and they were hiding in the subways and the metros and bomb shelters, you know, while the army was fighting the Russians. And when I look at Gaza today, all I see is Hamas leadership hiding in tunnels and dodging Israeli bullets and, you know, covering up uh, their, their, their traces. They're nowhere to be seen except when they announce from, you know, Qatar that they're going to continue this attack. Uh, and the civilians are left defenseless as, as if they were, you know, expendable. Um, I've never seen anything quite like this. It, it, it really is a bizarre um, twist of, of logic here. Um, it's similar to the Russians, uh, the Germans exposing their civilians to the, to the Red Army rather than surrendering. Um, why is that? Why, why would any group of people do something um, like that on a for a military reason? Do you have a theory? I, I have thought about this um, after you invited me to do this talk, and um, I think that there are there are parallels, but there are also points of departure between the two um, two conflicts. Tell us. Tell um, us. For, so first of all, when we look at we go re review the factors that we talked about with Nazi Germany, the positive factors, the fighting for a righteous cause. That is writ large all over the Middle East, and indeed applies to both sides. Both sides. Totally true. Totally sides, true. Yeah, both sides absolutely believe in the righteousness of their cause. That's. I'm going to interrupt you, and I'll tell you why. Because God talks to those people. And now I've well, been to. I've been to the West Bank. I've been yeah. to Gaza. I've been to Israel many times, and these people actually are in touch with God. They, he, he's actually talking to them on both sides, telling that, them that, 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 what that's, to that's do. exactly right. That's exactly right. This is, if you like, the an additional nuance on top of Nazi Germany, in that the overlay of religion by both sides is actually deeply unhelpful because it makes both sides even 100%. more flexible and intransigent. In the case of militant Islam and Hamas, uh, perhaps isn't militant Islam in the form of ISIS, but nevertheless, many of its uh, members and supporters embrace certain aspects of militant Islam. And, you know, these people will tell you that if an innocent person dies, um, in a just cause, um, Allah will grant them immediate access to heaven, to paradise. So if they're suffering and they die as a result of Israeli bombs or as a result of a suicide bombing, in their mind, they're doing these people a favor because they're giving them a, an immediate ticket to, to heaven, to paradise. Um, so they use this, if you like, as part of the justification for what they're doing and for the, for the suffering around them. If we then look at, if you like, the negative factors, the fear factors, again, this plays a huge part on both sides of, of the conflict in that um, the Israelis are deeply fearful and with every reason of an organization whose avowed intent is the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, and likewise, um, Hamas looks at what the IDF has done in the past and is doing at present and says, well, these people are bent on destroying us. Even if we were to lay down our arms, there are plenty, you just have to listen to some of the pronouncements from uh, uh, Israeli politicians and media that this is an opportunity to cleanse Gaza of the Palestinians. They will take our land away from us. They will make us into refugees. What do we have to lose by carrying on fighting? If our 
if our very existence uh, is going to be ended by, by surrender. So in a way, it's a little bit like the Germans in 45, where we, you know, the other side is only offering us unconditional surrender, occupation, dismemberment of our country. If we carry on fighting, what could possibly be worse than, than what they are intending to do to us anyway? They know that that's not true. They know that the, the, that the United Nations, the United States, the European Union, and, and uh, even the Mideast Gulf states would step in immediately and rebuild Gaza as a democracy, as a, for, for free elections, whatever. They, they know that, that that's not the intent of the Israelis. They already right. withdrew well, in 2005. Well, well indeed. Uh, indeed, but two points on that. First of all, um, rebuilding Gaza as even a, a, a quasi-democratic state would be against the interests of Hamas because it would, right. it would take away their stranglehold on power. And secondly, it's not even a question of whether this is actually a true representation of what's going to happen. If it, if enough people believe it, uh, it allows them to continue um, in, in that manner. So if they tell um, the Palestinians of Gaza, this is what Israel will do to you, um, then particularly when you are living under the almost unimaginable stress of constant bombardment, of shelling, of bombing, etc. It is very easy to believe the worst possible um, interpretations of the intentions of your enemy. Um, so, right. yeah, so, so if you like, uh, but, this, is a but, bit, this is a bit like Goebbels with his talk right. about what the Red Army is going to do. But we're hearing all these somewhat reports um, that the Palestinians in Gaza are fed up with Hamas, that they realize this was ridiculous, that we're, what were they thinking when they crossed the border and, and raped and slaughtered and, and murdered all the Israelis? Did they not think this was going to happen? You know, we're hearing that there is some, exactly like in Germany, I guess at some point, there are people that are looking around going like, Regardless of whether or not we like the Israelis or the Jews, this wasn't a really good tactical move. Look at me. I don't have a family anymore. I don't have a home. I don't have a job. I don't have it. You know, I'm, I'm wounded. We are hearing this, are we not? Yes. No, absolutely we are. And in fact, there was that there was a widespread mood of that in Germany in 1945, late 44. Um, one of the big functions of the uh, the SD, which was, if you like, the internal security service of the SS, one of its biggest functions was to keep um, uh, keep an understanding of what was happening in German society, what Germans were thinking. And the SD reports talk about widespread war weariness. Mm. People want the war to end. Right. They want the bombing to stop. But the means by which people might have been able to rise up and allow that to happen, those means had been taken away from them. So they were powerless. And again, you can see that in the Middle East. You know, um, the ordinary people of Gaza have absolutely no yes. means right. of saying to the Palestinian leadership. Right. Off. And, and of course, you know, like, like you've touched upon, uh, there, there another parallel to this is that at no stage during the war did Hitler ever visit a military hospital to see wounded soldiers. At no stage did he ever visit a bombed city to meet wow. homeless civilians. Of course, he was in Berlin wow. a lot of the time, so he saw damage. But, right. you know, other, other Nazi figures did do that, but he specifically did not. And when you distance yourself from the people who are suffering and are, are doing the killing and dying, it becomes more straightforward to devalue their lives and to regard them as merely, you know, to use that, um, the awful line from the first Shrek movie where um, Lord Farquhar says, some of you are going to die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. You know, it becomes easy to take that sort of mindset when you're not in daily contact with the suffering that is occurring. And, you know, it's no coincidence that the high command of, of Hamas are actually in Qatar on the other side yes, right. of the Arabian Peninsula. Then yeah. they're there. If they were, you know, things might actually be slightly different. Well, wow, that's an interesting that's an interesting thought. The reports uh, as if we didn't know this, but you know, there's a big deal um, as of Thursday. The New York Times, you know, the blessed uh, blessed paper of our civilization, 
um, uh, finally came out evidently with an enormous, you know, report about the atrocities that went on uh, September 7th, and specifically the documentation of the sexual abuse, uh, the rape of women, the rape of girls, the mutilation of genitals, the, 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 the barbaric, you know, almost uh, Genghis Khan style uh, uh, sexual attacks uh, of, uh, on the the Jews by the uh, by Hamas. Um, anybody who doesn't think that that's not in the mind of the IDF and the mind of the Israeli leadership when they're seeking uh, to uh, take down Hamas at all costs is uh, missing the boat. Uh, if you think that there's any leader in the world that uh, is going to permit that to happen upon their civilians. In the in this in the barbarity uh, in the 21st century that is literally primitive in its in, in its uh, its 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 scope, um, and not think that that's going to create a fertile ground for revenge at all costs is is missing the boat because it uh, does absolutely. create that. No, you just no. you just you just you don't you don't let that happen to your to your women. You don't let that happen. You just under any circumstances, whether you're Arab, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Nigerian, whether it doesn't make a difference. That's just you're absolutely right. And I, there's a a friend of mine who lives in Russia. Um, I've known him for many many years, and we chat uh, every week or two, um, even in the current situation. And I remember when the news broke about the Russian army's atrocities in uh, Bucha and other parts. Yeah. Of of want to get to that Ukraine and he said to me um yep. what do you think will be the biggest impact of this and I said at a stroke you have made it very very hard for Zelensky ever to yep. concede a single square meter of Ukrainian territory uh to Russia because exactly as you say how can you leave any of your people um exposed even to the risk of such a thing happening again you know that is so interesting because <laughs> I, I am so appalled that the UAE fetid Putin when he came to, to the UAE, you know, three weeks ago and the red carpet and the flag and the Russian flag in the sky and, you know, gave him a hero's welcome. It's and, and he's been declared a war criminal by the by the European court. We know that, that, that he sanctioned these attacks in Bucha. And 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 no, never apologize for them, et cetera. I mean, to, and he's now parading around the UAE and South Africa and other places as some sort of a statesman. I mean, it, it, we really have gone mad on the planet Earth. There's really no no well, we other have. way to look at it. We we have, and I think oh, good. That, <laughs> and I think that you know, how could I not agree? I mean, when you when you think about the the motivation behind this, the only quasi-rational thing that I can come up with is it is these these sorts of attacks are deliberately intended to force the other side into a more extreme position. You know, you can interpret an awful lot of what has happened in the Middle East as attempts by, you know, I, I have heard people trying to explain some of the behavior of of uh, not only Hamas, but also the PLA, PLO before them as an exercise in provoking Israel into taking disproportionate measures against the Palestinian people in order to provide the next generation of recruits. Wow. Um, and, you know, I wonder, you know, when you try to think yourself into the mind of whoever permitted those uh, Hamas insurgents inside Israel to you know, let's face it, killing anybody is a bad thing, as you have said. To kill them in a particularly brutal and bestial manner, in the end, they're still dead. But all it's the only purpose that additional layer of brutality serves is to antagonize your enemy. And if you like, almost make make revenge almost guaranteed, which then feeds the cycle of violence. It means that your own young will then be more alienated and more um, radicalized and will provide the ample um, fodder for the next generation of conflict. You know, that's so interesting. I've always wondered what uh, some a Palestinian thinks when he looks at a bomb crater and he sees this gigantic hole where a house or a school or a mosque used to be. He peers over these craters. We see these photos endlessly from Gaza. I, I, I really always look at that. I study their faces and I try to figure out 
Uh, is this going to provoke revenge when you look at this, or does it dawn on them that maybe you know there's a better solution to this? That you know, do we need more of this? I, there used to be a school here or a hospital, and now there's a crater. I mean, it, it, the rational mind would say, "Oh, you know, maybe we should come up with another way that to stop this." The irrational mind would say, "Boy, let's let's uh, provoke some more people so they could make a bigger crater." <laughs> it, yeah, and in, in, in your cycle of violence, it, it's it's a mindset that we don't understand. We, we the West doesn't understand the the, the well. The, I, th the I think mindset. it's. I, I think that there's an, another interesting point of departure here from uh, the end of the Second World War, in that the, the Second World War is actually quite an unusual conflict in the way it, that it ends. Most wars do not end with the complete and utter destruction of one nation. Usually there is some sort of messy or more or less messy compromise in order to negotiate an end to the conflict. The complete elimination of Nazism, of Japanese fascism, was only possible because the victorious powers had boots on the ground mm -hmm. and complete control of the people and of the machinery of the defeated nations. They were able to impose education systems, media, mm -hmm. um, electoral systems, which um, you know, let's face it, in the case of Imperial Japan, there was absolutely no history of, <laughs> of, of widespread uh, franchise uh, for voting. Uh, even in Germany, it was a, a mixture, but it didn't have a particularly stellar record. And yet both of those countries turned into thriving democracies where all transitions of power ever since then have been by democratic means. Now, you cannot do that in a modern world because like we were touching on a, a, mm. you know, the control of the Nazi mindset because you controlled all of the media, even if the IDF were able to take complete physical control of Gaza, and even if uh, the Western world and the rest of the world was prepared to permit this to continue, there would still be countries like Iran that are mm -hmm. hostile to Israel and to the West who would be able to feed resistance, um, opposition, antagonism via the internet, via other agencies, mm -hmm. etc. So this, that sort of absolute solution that we had at the end of the Second World War is not going to happen on this occasion. And, no, and, it isn't. And, I, and I wonder whether some of the commentators I have uh, read uh, who are in Jerusalem fully understand the limitations of victory in the modern world and how that sort of total victory is really not achievable. There's, there's a, a very, very good book I read uh, last year called A Paragon. I can't remember who it's by, but it's an account of, um, if you like, the parallel lives of two fathers, one Israeli, one Palestinian. I read it last week. There you go. And, and, and you know, his um, the, the sticker that the Israeli guy has on his motorbike of this doesn't end until we talk. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that is, if you like, the 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 lesson that the world still shies away from and doesn't want to accept that however much you hate the other side however much you believe in your own righteous cause the only way this ends is when we find some common ground where we can live side by side without being armed to the teeth well that, I did read that book last week. I can't believe that you read it. It's a really profound book. And a friend of mine was so motivated to, to, to because he read it, he gave it to me. The, the only solution I see to this is 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 modernity. You see, I, I look at the Gulf states. I even now look at Saudi Arabia to some degree. I really look at the Iranian people who are oppressed by their, their mullahs. They are not the, they are not the fanatics that, the, the, the running around. To the degree of total poverty of the say the the Yemenis, I mean, mo modernity can bring prosperity. I mean, I've been to you know Ramallah, and I've met enough Palestinian businessmen in my life that I know that these guys are not running around trying to you know destroy uh, Jews. They 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 work with them. They they do business with them. They build they build factories together. They do commerce, and they get along side by side because there's a modernity there. There's, you know, they travel, they're, they're wealthy, they, they, they're thinking about their children and, and their children's children doing better. So I have great faith that if there's modernity and, and, and an increase in, in, in wealth and an increase in, in, in uh, the desire to have a better life, 
that 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 can fix the Mideast. Um, when I look at when I when I look at the Abraham Accords or I look at other individuals, it's the states that are really held down and held back. I mean, the Hutus in 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 Yemen being the, you know they, they all showed up for an anti-Israeli demonstration. They don't have anything. They're starving to death. Their children are starving to death. There's malnutrition. They don't have a functioning hospital. But they, they, this is what they're worried about. They're worried about Gaza. They should worry about themselves, but they can't. So that's just my own take. Is that is and and many other people have been trying over the decades yeah, to can, increase you, the, you, the, the you, economic you, activity. Yes, you could people. you could rephrase that and say that it's when you have something to lose mm -hmm. that you become less committed to waging a war to the bitter end and to destroying the other side. And, you know, Israel certainly has a great deal to lose. Um, but when you look at the poverty in, in Gaza and, you know, how little they have and the conditions in which they live and the uncertainty of their lives, um, it, you can see how comparatively straightforward it is for um, the current Palestinian leadership to persuade those people you Easily. have nothing to lose, you know. Well, they, they, in my opinion, this is really just my opinion. They, they have sacrificed those people. You know, I was yes. there for the Israeli withdrawal. I, I actually went to the, the, the places that they withdrew from and saw them. They could have turned Gaza into Singapore. Well, they could have. And, you know, I discovered recently, for example, that um, the uh, the European Union provided uh, uh, the Palestinians with uh, a large amount of funding so that they could build uh, their own power stations, etc., across Gaza and uh, desalination plants and thus remove any dependency upon Israel for these, you know, basic yeah. resources. Right. That money just disappeared. No, um, it didn't disappear. It became the tunnels that, that, well, that, that it, Hamas yes, is hiding. Yes. It didn't disappear. And, and of it course, became the tunnels. But the and, cement and became... That, yeah. Yeah, and and the lifestyle of the of the Hamas leadership in places right. like Qatar requires funding. The money has to come from somewhere, you know. Right. So so you know you're right. They have had opportunities, but the people haven't had the opportunity. No, the people haven't had the opportunity. Uh, and and and, and that's that, is, that's that's the Islamic yeah. way. I mean, there you know I am re reading uh, Robert Kaplan's book right now. Uh, on uh, on on the 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 survey of the survey of the Middle East, et cetera, um, and you know he just points out there isn't a, there isn't a democracy anywhere. Even if an enlightened state like in the Gulf and Bahrain, it's ruled by a ruler. There's a sheikh, you know. Even Saudi Arabia, you know, Morocco. There's not one country that is that that, that people actually show up, vote for a legitimate in a legitimate election in the entire in the entire Islamic world. That's pretty or that that's pretty profound. Um, well, so it is. I, and I think the if you like the the Gulf states show that provided you spread the wealth around sufficiently, exactly. you can get away with that. Yeah, exactly. um, you know, right. because, you know, if you, you you avoid the disgruntled classes because everybody is getting plenty of money, their electricity is free, healthcare is free and very high quality, education is free, yada, yada, yada. You can see how that takes away people's longing to have their hands on the reins of power. Um, but it's when you don't have that sort of largesse that you then get unrest and in a way there are parallels there with um you know with medieval and renaissance kingdoms where one of the the functions of the of the ruler and the ruling class was to distribute largesse in order to keep um keep their supporters quiescent um and in a way yeah for all the glittering cities that now line the arabian gulf you could see those as the means by which these autocratic rulers remain in power by providing these toys, by, by providing these things for their people. Yeah. And the other side of the coin is that the Palestinians that want peace and a better life for themselves and their children and want an education and want to live in a wonderful civil society, they voted with their feet, as, the, as people always in America talk about. They voted with the, they're in Dearborn, Michigan, as doctors and lawyers. They're in yes. pharmacists in, in, in Toronto. They're, they're, they're engineers in Dubai. I mean, the, the, the Palestinian diaspora is an educated, brilliant, intelligent, entrepreneurial Despora, they have left Gaza and they have left, you know, the, the countries that are, you know, the, the, the refugee camps in Syria and the refugee camps in, in, in Jordan and uh, Lebanon to, to make a real life for themselves in the, in the West. And they're in they're They're all over the West and, and thriving and, and, and professionals. And, and you and want to bless them. 
and and thus you have removed the best and the brightest. Precisely. And Precisely. The, ones who, the ones who are left are the ones who need those brains. They they need that, those thinkers, those healthcare workers, those scientists. They can't go back. Etc. And they can't go back. Yeah. They can't go back. They'll be, they can't go back. Okay. Boy, we've covered an hour's worth. It's the longest podcast I've ever done. Um, thank you very much. This is really, um, really insightful and, and brilliant. What are you working on now? You told me something on the phone that was so, as usual, so exciting. What's the next Prit Patar book coming up? Well, well, Jonathan, when you contacted me about this, I was in the process of reading up <laughs> about the closing months of the war um, and about the ongoing power struggles in Berlin with people still fighting over who had more influence over the Fuhrer, even though there was increasingly little future in pursuing those power games. So, you know, talking Great about book. talking about the motivation, talking about what how what limited freedom of of action people had to try to bring this terrible conflict to an end it was already very much on my mind and then when Wonderful. you this, immediately you know much like you did i could see both the parallels and the points of difference and i and i think by looking at both of those um, or even though as you say you and i are not experts on the current middle east but this shows the value of understanding history, but also, if you like, the limitations of then applying it in a blanket manner. And yeah. you have to look at you have to look at which lessons are applicable, which ones aren't. And if you do, then perhaps there is hope that we can pick our way out of this current mess. Listeners. Believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Please follow us at OOTB with Jay Russo on Instagram.